Since everyone has a gender journey, Gender Journeys is a podcast for everyone. That being said, we occasionally touch on mature themes and use strong language, so listener discretion is advised. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Gender Journeys, the podcast where we talk about just what the heck gender actually is in context. As always, I am one of your hosts, Josie, and I'm joined by your other host, my lovely partner, Elle. Hello, everyone! So, what are we talking about on the podcast this week? This week we're going to do something a little different and talk about current events and intersectionality. Mm -hmm. Um, So we will actually primarily be talking about our racial identities more so than our queer identities Mm -hmm. for context josie and i are both white and but also but also how that intersects with our queer identities right we'll be we'll be talking about the queer identities too a bit but the current state of the u.s which is where josie and i live demands talking about race yeah i mean i think that's really what it boils down to and so we wanted to be responsive to what's going on yeah to what's going on because there's there's a lot there is a lot going on. Oh yeah, there's right a lot now. going on. So I guess also before we get started, there's a couple of considerations we want to go into here. So to start off with a little bit of a uh, content warning, mm. um, we are going to be talking quite a bit about what, what what would you call it? Like political violence, political violence, racialized violence, violence in general, scary scary situations. Yeah, yeah. So you know if that is something that you are trying to avoid hearing about yeah you know maybe uh i mean i'm not saying i'm not saying skip skip the episode completely but just do what you need to do to take care of yourself to be ready to take in some potentially trying material it's not this is not a light episode of gender journeys maybe next week maybe next week (laughs) maybe Um, next week send us some send us some suggestions we need something light (laughs) we do we need we need maybe we'll do D &D part two (laughs) and then to the point of how much is going on in america for context, we are recording this in the early afternoon on Saturday, the 16th of January. So if anything wild happens on Saturday night or Sunday or Monday, all days that I've heard that there might be some wild plans for, we don't know about that yet. Yeah. Nothing wild has happened thus far this weekend in terms of U.S. politics and U.S. news. Well, I guess the president was impeached, but that was kind of expected. (laughs) Um, What a time. What a time we live in. But so if you're listening to this on Tuesday and you're like, I hope that they talk about that crazy thing that happened on Sunday. We won't. It hasn't happened yet. Also, for context, our cats are losing their goddamn minds. (laughs) They are. They are. One of our cats is running around and he's yelling. So if you hear him in the background. That's Fergus. Yep, that's Fergus. Yeah, so that's a lot of disclaimers. It's an unusual week on the podcast and also in our lives. So, you know. You know. Yeah. We're doing what we can. Oh, there he go. Fergus has opinions, too. He does. He wants to be heard. He wants to go on the podcast. Come be on the podcast, Babs. Anyway. anyway. All right, let's dive into it. I guess we probably then should start with kind of yet more context. What's going on? Like, what, what do our listeners need to know? 
Yeah, so I think that the main context, if you are either not in the U.S., so you haven't been keeping up with our news, or you are trying to not follow the U.S. political news, which is very fair, very fair. The main things that we're going to be talking about today are the insurrection that happened at our Capitol a week ago. Was it only a week ago? Was it a week ago or was it four days ago? I have no idea. I have no context. It was January 6th. I do have context. It was January 6th. Okay. It was like... So the insurrection that happened at our Capitol 10 days ago, (laughs) just about a week and a half ago, that's the main, that and the fallout from that and the responses to that are the main things that we're going to be talking about on this episode. Mm-hmm. And so that event was a hodgepodge of Trump supporters who seemingly just wanted to go like protest at the Capitol and like tell people to stop the steal was their tagline because they believe that Trump was elected again when he was not They have been lied to by a huge group of people, and they think that Biden was not elected. Which is... It's wrong. Provably, demonstrably false. It's it's incredibly false. But these people have been lied to. Like, I mean, Mm -hmm. they, they, like, there's a huge section of our actual government who's backing them up, which is terrible. But then I think that's something that isn't always getting as much of attention as it should, is there were much deeper, darker cesspools present at the insurrection, such as like the QAnon people, um, such as white nationalists, just like straight up and down white nationalists. And yeah, I think those are the two main really scary groups. Yeah, I mean, there were militias, but that kind of falls under the white nationalists sort of. The militias fall under one of those two categories. Yeah. But people that like, for longer than Trump has been around, or at least longer than Trump has been our president, have wanted the fall of democracy and or the fall of non-cis white men, yeah, Christian white men. Yeah. And so like, what we're going to be talking about today is not just the fact that there was an insurrection, right? Mm-hmm. We're going to be talking about kind of the response to it. Right. The emotional response that we might feel and how that plays into both our race and our queer identities. Right. And even before that, I do want to talk about the instruction just just a wee bit more in in providing the context of how racialized it was. Because I think right. that some people, right, definitely people know that the white nationalists were up there fighting a racialized fight, right? They don't want Kamala to come into the White House, right? They are terrible, terrible people, you know, whatever. We get the idea. White nationalists, not good people. But I think that a point that some people miss is that the whole thing was racialized. And I heard language describing it recently that called the entire event an outpouring of white rage. Mm -hmm. And to that point, I don't think that it is accidental that it happened the day um, the first black Georgian senator was ever elected and the first Jewish Georgian senator was ever elected. And I don't think it is coincidental that it is couched in Trump supporters, who is a president that was elected elected in many ways in backlash to America's first black president. Yeah. Like these are yeah. very specific white rage clapbacks mm-hmm. to the U.S. becoming a more, the U.S. government becoming more diverse. Right. And I mean... Trump rose to power on the back. I mean, he rose to prominence on the back of the birtherism movement, which was an inherently racist attempt to delegitimize President Obama. Yeah. Um, 
his rhetoric was openly populist and xenophobic and racist, which appealed to people who didn't want there to be a black president. Right. So. And so we can't lose sight of the fact that, like, I'm not talking about the people who showed up at the Capitol in, like, military gear with, like, zip ties. Those people. That's a whole different set of issues. I'm talking about, like, the people who just looked like your average white folk in Trump gear who were storming the Capitol. It's not coincidental that those folks were radicalized in this moment where our freshman Congress class is more diverse than it ever has been. Where, yeah. uh, And it's not, it's not coincidental that they were radicalized under, again, the president that was America's very loud and very definite answer to um, our first black president. Our first, of course, by the way, wildly successful black president, <laughs> if I may say so. Mm-hmm. So that is the context. And then something that I've been thinking a lot about this last week and a half, these last 10 days, is how different people are responding to this news and how right. I'm responding to this news. Because I think that we have to be aware that this news hits different based on your racial identity. Mm-hmm. So I something that I've really been noticing in myself and in the white people around me is something that I also got language for at an, in an anti-racist white learning group, which is this reaction to the shock value. So this has definitely been my reaction. It has been the reaction of many white people I've seen around me, which is like, we keep watching the news. Like we cannot tear our eyes away. We like want to know more. We have to understand. We want to like read another article. We want to discuss it. We want to like, we're like, oh my God, like, how could this ever happen? I need more details. I need more information. I need more, more, more. Like, tell me more. I need to keep engaging with this because I cannot, because it's so shocking. I can't wrap my head around it. I can't wrap my head around it. Obviously, like shock value is not associated with white people who think this is positive, but it's associated with like White people like myself who are very energized by this. Like, oh my God, how could this happen? I need to learn more about it. I need to do something. What can I do? Mm-hmm. Um, what can I, what can I, what can I do? <laughs> like, yeah. I need to do something. And that is couched deeply in this idea that it is happening somewhere else to somebody else. Mm-hmm. That it is not a direct threat to me. And that is deeply rooted in my white privilege And that is important to recognize because then you have to recognize that not everybody's experiencing it that way. Right. And so like for the sake of context and the discussion, what kinds of people might not be experiencing that way? Non-white people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So like I think from conversations I've had with my non-white colleagues, it's very valid to just not want to talk about this shit. Like, because it's scary on a, it's scary in a different way. Mm-hmm. It's scary in a tiring way. It's scary in a enraging way. It's scary in a not energizing way. Right. <laughs> um, I can't, I can't speak for non-white people. I don't know. These are just some of the like concepts that have come up in, cause I work in a very diverse workplace. Mm-hmm. And that's been hard for me, especially as a leader on a team of what eight, on which there are three white people, myself included, because I want to come to work every day and be like, did you see the latest news? Did you do this? Have you read this article? Like, let me discuss. But that's not necessarily the most constructive way forward. It's not the most constructive, nor is the the most kind to my Mm -hmm. colleagues of color who might be having a very different experience, who probably are having a very different experience. Right. And so I kind of 
think that I mostly know the answer to this question, but maybe I don't. But I'm sure that there are some listeners who might be having this question too if, you know, I'm queer. Mm. This was scary for me too. Like Trump has done a lot of pretty vile anti-queer stuff along with all of his pretty vile racist stuff. And like, it's not like the people who stormed the Capitol are necessarily super well informed about gender identity. <laughs> One of them had a pride flag. One of them did have a pride flag. and That, that was, was shocking. Dis- that was quite disappointing. <laughs> um, but yeah, so like, what is where is that intersection come in? Yeah, so I do. I think that that is a really interesting intersection, and it does definitely change some of the way that we can think about this. But I think it still plays into that shock value because I think that as a white queer person, it's still quite shocking and energizing because I'm not used to my life being threatened by the U.S. government. Right. I'm not used to major movements, major social movements in the um, United States threatening my existence right and i mean in a way that that's a privilege that we have because yeah it was not always that way for queer folks in general in the u.s that is kind of a generational and a a situational privilege that we have but also it is i mean to my understanding that feeling is still happening for people of color Mm -hmm. and specifically queer people of color have the intersection of i'm scared because i'm queer and may be, I don't know, outlawed. Mm. But also, you know, there's the other fears that you've already that you've already been talking about of this like tired and enraging fear right. as a person of color. Yeah. I think that it's all about just realizing that your reactions are being informed by your race. I think that as white queer people, I see a lot of white queer people and definitely used to do this and still catch myself doing it occasionally thinking that my reactions and my um, actions in general come from a place of my queerness because it's it's we're very aware of our quote-unquote targeted identities. We're very aware of the parts of our identities that are oppressed because like same reason that like if you're walking into the wind, you're very aware of it. If you're walking with your back to the wind, you're not aware of it, even mm-hmm. if it's the same like strength of wind, right? So we're very aware of the things that are um, parts of our identities that are oppressed we are much less aware of the ways that our privileges affect how we're acting. And so you're probably already aware of how like your queerness plays into how you're thinking about this, but you have to think about how your whiteness plays into it as well. Right. And how your identity as a white queer person also plays into it. Because I think sometimes we separate those so dramatically because we like to just casually forget about the fact that there are people who are both not white and queer because they're so rarely represented in any media. Right. So much of, well, so much queer representation and so many queer spaces are white queer spaces that don't really take into account non-white voices and don't really give visibility to non-white people. And don't, act in ways that would make non-white people feel safe. Yeah, yeah. And are often couched in incredibly white-dominant places, like historically white colleges and universities Mm -hmm. and places like that, that it's literally already a privilege to be at. So there's already so many, like, gradients of shifting out people of color. Right, right. So. And I wonder if you'd like to say anything, too, about something that I know that we have both struggled with. Mm. And that is this idea, not only of like not necessarily being aware of your white privilege and the white intersection of your queer identity, but using your queer identity kind of as a shield. Yeah. I definitely fell into this so much last year. 
I think that again, it just falls back to the fact that like in our white culture, it's, I think that there are a lot of pieces of white fragility, which we can link definitions to a lot of these terms and like PDFs and stuff that'll explain a lot of this. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think a lot of pieces of white fragility tell you that like, if you're speaking about other people's identities, like you'll say something wrong and you'll offend people and there's fear of open conflict, which keeps you from saying anything potentially controversial. That's a huge part of white dominant culture. And all of those things culminate in the fact that it's a lot easier for us to talk about things that we think we know. So -hmm. it's a lot easier for us to talk about things like queerness if you're queer, because like, well, I can't say anything wrong about queerness. I'm queer. Who's going to correct me? Whereas I inherently feel like I can say a lot of things wrong about race because Mm -hmm. I'm white, which is in our hearts and souls the way that we've been taught to think of a raceless person. I don't have race, so I can't talk about it. I'm not an expert on it. Right. Which is an incorrect way of thinking, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but it is the way that we're programmed. And so it's so much easier for us to tune into queerness and talking about queerness where we feel we know what's up and we are safe in that discussion or in our rightness in that discussion to some extent Mm -hmm. in a way that we are not safe talking about race right or our white fragility will tell us that we're not safe (laughs) right and then linking even that then back to the capital insurrection to the outpouring of white rage it's really easy as queer people for us to get trapped in this kind of mindset of like i can't believe that happened like it boils down to this kind of like i would never do that because i'm queer like this idea that you are exempt from really taking any sort of i don't want to say responsibility but like I think I said at some point that it feels like it's not happening to you. By being white queer people, we can be like, those people who are doing that are not like me. Those are not queer white people. And I am a queer white person. So I'm not like, I'm not involved in that whole situation. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, like, if you're a white person in the US, like, you are involved in the structure of racism. You can't not be. If that's news to you, I am so sorry. It is hard to take in, but you cannot be because your silence is going to be involved in racism. Your speaking out in the wrong moments and the wrong ways is going to be involved in racism. And your ability to be curious and ask questions and learn and unlearn Mm -hmm. is going to be involved in anti-racism, which is inherently still involved in racism. Like there's no... Shut up. (laughs) (laughs) There's no... There's no being uninvolved in racism in America. Right, Right. yeah. Or the UK, but that's another conversation. And we can link to a couple of resources, both for the US and the UK. And I have at least one book for the UK. I don't know how much I have else for the UK, but... And if you want some guidance in getting some resources for whatever country or region you live in, hit Elle up. Yeah, I got you. Elle will find you a book. They're very good at that. I do. I am. I like me some books. But I think that using queerness as an ability to remove ourselves and make ourselves back into raceless creatures is a defense that we need to learn to put down and admit that, like, in this moment of, like, incredible racialized violence and racialized Mm -hmm. um, politics in general, you are going to be foremost white. Yeah. And to that point, something that I think is also important to bear in mind, in this moment, you are not, like somehow just as much in danger or just as much as yeah like the victim of the insurrection just mm-hmm. because you are queer yeah when the insurrection the unrest that is currently happening in the US is based 
almost entirely around race and white rage against diversity. I would argue entirely. Yeah. So any feeling you have of like, this is affecting me just as much as my, you know, people of color friends. Mm -hmm. I don't know that that it's just not like, and especially if you have BIPOC queer friends, like, yeah. And I think that's something that I will like, I will add as well is that of course, like this is traumatic for everybody. Right. And we all deserve healing. And I I want to be super clear. My personal opinion is that this is traumatic for the dumb fucks that did the insurrection as well. Something happened to them that got them there and they need healing and accountability. Healing starts with accountability. Mm-hmm. But this is traumatic for every single person that's living through it. And I think that the important thing is to remember that like we are all experiencing trauma and we're all experiencing it differently. Mm-hmm. And you're coping skills may harm people around you so i'll bring it back to my example of like i just need to keep taking in information i need to keep learning i need to keep understanding that is how i am coping and if i bring that to my mixed race group of people which is my team and then just keep doing that coping mechanism that can be harming people around me right. in a way that white people aren't often held accountable for right. especially as a white person in, in in the position of leadership i mm. likely wouldn't be held accountable for that and so i need to hold myself accountable for it and i need to be aware that like another part of the white dominant culture is the fact that we feel like everybody's having an experience just like us our experience is the normal Our experience is the standard. And so my assumption is that other people are being traumatized in the way that I am. That's what like my my white dominant culture norms in my heart and soul that I've internalized tell me. Mm -hmm. But they lie. They lie a lot. And this is something they're lying about. Yeah. Because we're not internalizing this equally. We're not internalizing it the same. And as a white person, I need to extend my emotional bandwidth and like, I hate the term, but like, and my role as an ally is to consider how other people might be responding. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, I can't tell you how like your BIPOC friend is responding. You're going to have to ask them, <laughs> but like, you have to consider that it might be different than what you need, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was going to just ask, like, we've kind of been very much on the like, this is what you can't do yeah. in this in this episode, like you as a white person. So for the white listeners here, what can they do? Like, what can we do for each other in this moment to be the most, like, equitably helpful to everyone around us? Ask people what they need. Name it. I know. I know. Deep in your, your heart and soul, you're like, well, I can't be like, hi, I see that you're black and I'm white. Can I help you? Don't don't say it like that. But, like, name the fact that, like, you realize that this is a an outpouring of white rage and, like, name that you're against that by naming it you can start to create yourself as a safe space right Mm -hmm. because part of the issue with our white skin is that like the same way that we are trained not to talk about this um many black people are trained not to talk to us about it because like lord knows statistically white people are not trustworthy to talk about race so like by naming it you can start that conversation and you can literally just say hey i know this is an outpouring of white rage is there anything i can do to support you or what can i do to support you or i feel that i'm experiencing this differently than you what do you need yeah (laughs) or just Listen to people. I think also sometimes when people say they need something different than what you expect them to need, you don't believe them. 
as a general rule. That looks like if somebody's like, oh, I'm not listening to the news right now because it's too much for me to handle. I often hear people being like, you have to listen to the news. Like, how else will you know what's going on? Don't do that. Like, I mean, that person just told you what they needed. And you were like, no. (laughs) Like, Like, I mean, really listen to people. (laughs) Like, if democracy crumbles, they'll hear about it. Mm -hmm. They don't need the minute by minute updates that I currently am craving. Right, exactly. And like, and and especially, especially if you are in any sort of leadership role, name what's going on and name that it is racialized. Allow people the space to talk about that, even if they don't want to, because again, they might be responding to it differently. They might be like, "Mm, no, thank you. But by starting a conversation, you can signal that it is safe to start that conversation because as a white person, you have less to lose by starting that conversation. Um, There is a huge, long history of Black people losing friends, jobs, lives over bringing up race. That history doesn't exist for white people. White people historically don't bring up race very well. But it definitely, we've definitely not lost lives over it. Yeah. So start that conversation and name the racialized nature of the events that are going on. Yeah. And then listen. Yeah. And also, I mean, take care of yourself. Do what you yes. need to. Because this is stressful, like we said. Yeah. Even if you haven't yet taken into account all of your intersectionalities and you maybe were not quite as aware of, like, maybe how you were utilizing your queerness to mask your whiteness or distancing yourself from your whiteness, mm-hmm. you still deserve to take some time and take what you need to, like... This is traumatic for all of us. Yeah. Yeah. Just... Do it mindfully and make sure that you are aware of what's happening to those around you too. Yeah. And I mean, truly, I think that another thing that our white dominant culture tells us, well, specifically our colorblind upbringing, at least like Josie and I's, we were raised in the colorblind era of like the correct way to deal with race is not to see it. And if you see race, you are in fact the racist. Oh, Lordy. That's bullshit. If nobody's ever told you that that's bullshit, let me tell you now it's bullshit. So also another thing you can do is like take stock of what the racial identities of people around you are. If everybody around you is white in this moment, maybe consider why that's true. And then realize that like you can then be more free to talk about your queerness, be more free to talk about how you're struggling with this. But if there are people with other intersecting identities that might be responding to this differently, maybe don't make your concerns as a white person the loudest and the the most demanding of attention in a mixed race space after an outpouring of white rage, because then Mm -hmm. you're just, you're making your BIPOC colleagues or friends or family members deal with their own emotions on the outpouring of white rage that's happening in our country and then take care of your white fragility. And that's just, I mean, that's just the history books right there. Like we we're trying to stop that. (laughs) Literally what we're trying to do is stop doing that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's okay to be like, to look around and be like, ah, this is a mixed race group of people. And so I'm not going to have that conversation right now, or I'm going to speak differently, or I'm going to listen a bit more, but still speak up being silent just because there's a black person in the room is not the way to go. That is (laughs) not it. That is not what I'm saying. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And I mean, again, like I, I want to be super clear, like everybody's being traumatized by this. Do what you need to do to take care of yourself and don't like also don't feel bad if you like you know if your best friend is a BIPOC person and you 
are crying to them about your traumatic experience with this. That's fine too. Like, I mean, this, th- there are individual yeah. moments, like, you know, your people, but just like realize that people might be internalizing this differently than you based on race. Yeah. All right. I think that's where we're going to wrap it up for this week's episode of Gender Journeys, the podcast where we talk about just what the heck gender actually is in context. As always, I am one of your hosts, Josie, and I am joined by your other host, my lovely partner, Elle. Bye, y'all. And until next week, just keep thinking about it. Music for Gender Journeys composed by Sonia Badash. If you want to stay up to date with Gender Journeys episodes or just want to say hi, you can follow us on Twitter at gender underscore journeys or on Tumblr at genderjourneys.tumblr.com. You can also find us online at josiewrites.com slash gender journeys. We hope to hear from you soon.